Hello and welcome to the Squeaky Bum Time Podcast with Mike and Laurent. Laurent isn't here this week, but we've got somebody better. It is Friday, March 4th. In this episode, Chelsea fans, strap in. It's been a wild week of drama on the field. Cup craziness and nonsense, Carabao Cup, FA Cup, and of course, off the field with all of the wildly evolving Roman Abramovich saga. Speaking of, we've got a guest on to help us get to the bottom of all of that. We're happy to welcome to the show, Ollie Carpenter of Goalytics. Ollie, how are you today? Hi, I'm good. Thank you, Mike. It's oh, it's good to be here, and I'm, I'm looking forward to talking shop with you today. Yeah, absolutely. So again, thank you so much for coming on. Um, first, let's talk a little bit about you and what Goalytics is. Uh, we met on Twitter uh, over the course of the last week or so, um, but I know I have some questions because it seems like a really interesting project, so I'll kind of shut up and let you take the floor. Um, well, Goalytics is something I sort of set up kind of ad hoc, um, out of nowhere. W- what originally happened was I, I, uh, I posted a, a great big long thread about Roman Abramovich and his ties to uh, the Kremlin and Putin and things like that. And it blew up. It got like 3,000 retweets in a couple days, like over 10,000 likes, 3 million odd people have seen it. And I wasn't expecting the, uh, the absolutely huge response that came from it. So um, I thought, well, what if there's a dedicated place for this sort of thing? Um, so I set up at Goalitics, which is uh, basically your one-stop shop for everything uh, which is sport and politics related. Very cool. Very cool. It's a better name than Squeaky Bum Time. We should have come up with that. Um, <laughs> so that's awesome. And I'm, I'm looking forward to kind of watching not just the, the growth of, of the platform, but also understanding a little bit more. Obviously, um, on our show, we sort of live in that gray area. I think that that's one where some of the more interesting storylines are. For me, as a Spurs supporter, it's why won't Joe Lewis spend a dime of his own money? But <laughs> largely, uh, it's in it's in larger things like this, right? And uh, and it's not often that it happens. Um, but when something as as massive as the Roman Abramovich saga that we've seen kind of pour out over the last week or so, it's great to have someone like yourself on the show to talk about. So. Um, so yeah, I mean, we chatted, I think it was on Saturday or maybe Sunday, uh, because right. Cause it was during the, the, the league cup final or before yeah. it. Um, and so Saturday, right. Let's walk through the whole week and then we'll kind of go step by step. Cause I'm curious about <laughs> your thoughts about it pretty much the whole way through. Um, so Saturday he announces that he's going to be stepping away from the club, but he's still going to be the owner, but he's giving control of the, uh, to the board of trustees. And so everybody went, hmm, that doesn't sound like the end of this road, but okay. What does that mean for Marina? What does that mean for a couple of the other higher-ups at Chelsea, right? Uh, Sunday, obviously, tumultuous day in the League Cup with the whole Kepa saga. We talked about that on our last episode. We won't make you relive that. Um, (laughs) uh, Monday, all of a sudden, Abramovich pops up uh, helping in peace talks between the Ukraine and Russia. Where in the hell did, did that come from? Tuesday, Matt Law... Uh, I think the Daily Mail uh, reported that Abramovich will be receiving offers and possibly could sell. That turns into Wednesday. Yeah, he's selling. He makes an official statement uh, with uh, through Chelsea Football Club on their social media outlets, on their website, all that. Uh, says he does not want the loan to be repaid back, but the price tag mm, suggests otherwise. And then, of course, on Thursday, uh, Chelsea were actually included, I don't know if you saw this, in what was rumored to be the Super League 2 electric boogaloo, as I'm calling it. Uh, But there were no German clubs, no PSG or Spurs or Arsenal. I think there was actually – there's conflicting reports on that. Um, So 
I mean, and, and there could be some some news since I don't know since we woke up today uh, that is even furthering this this story. So, but let's start back with that that thread on Twitter. If you could, uh, I guess as I was saying to our listeners in the last episode, we're gonna have Ali come on and explain it to me like I'm five years old. So, without further ado, <laughs> um, well, the so the the threads kind of breaks down uh, what. Uh, Abramovich's relationship with Putin and the Kremlin has been, and it's a story of about two decades in the making. Um, and it sort of it, it points out some sort of certain factors um, of about where Abramovich and Putin have crossed paths um, in the past. Um, specifically, it's like mostly in like the early two thousands. Um, Putin was um, recommended to. Uh, Boris Yeltsin by Abramovich as his successor to Russia, for example. Um, Abramovich was uh, a governor of um, a Russian oblast, like a province called uh, Chukotka in the Far East for like eight years. Um, he even recommended Med uh, President Medvedev um, to be uh, to jump in as, as president when Putin's previous term had subsided, um, while he sort of took a four year stint away uh, as a prime minister <laughs> yeah okay. it's very sort of liberal uh, how all that went but um and uh, the other major factor was uh, abramovich obviously had a, a very large role to play in um russia's successful world cup bid uh, for t the 2018 world cup um and from what i have read he has been instrumental um in that um, but it's interesting that there, from the year sort of like 2000 to 2008, there's like quite a lot of involvement with the Kremlin. And then after that, there's almost nothing um, except for the Russian World Cup, um, which leads me personally to believe that Abramovich sort of since that point, since leaving his governorship in Chukotka, um, kind of wanted to distance himself from Putin in a sense. Um and you can see why he would want to do that in some ways, you know, especially for the reasons we're seeing now, you know, right. sanctions and things like that that have been uh, talked around. You know, everyone on Twitter becomes an expert overnight. Right. But um, on the on geopolitics last week, it was uh, <laughs> something else. This week is geopolitics. Right. Um, it's really interesting. Um, and it's also important to note that um, Abramovich as well. Um, like I say, he was really involved in the 2018 World Cup, uh, Russian World Cup bid. Um, but other than that, in like a decade, he hasn't really been involved with the uh, with the Kremlin at all. Um, so there's this sort of is he isn't he involved sort of thing to it, where mm -hmm. it seems that like he's sort of he's keeping Putin at arm's length through other things that he's done, such as he gave Putin a yacht, for example. Um, he also um, didn't go back to Russia though when he when his visa wasn't renewed in the UK he went to Israel instead and got Israeli citizenship from their right to return um, and it just shows that this whole thing is that Abramovich knows Putin like that's completely you know that that's beyond a doubt known at this point um, knows Putin and even was described at least in the past as sort of having like a father-son relationship with him um, but now I think that's kind of more evolved into like uneasy alliance or sort of like a, as per you know, sure. that's kind of what i'd say whereas you know he's kind of keeping putin at arm's length um while sort of trying to protect his own assets and i think that's kind of ultimately where this wholesale of chelsea's come from that makes sense and even if you go back to um the the world cup bid right 
I don't mm-hmm. remember exactly when, but I know the 2022 World Cup bid was roughly around 2010 was when that election and that whole process was. So if you really, if you parse it back four more years, it's probably 2005, 2006, where that was all settled. So that settles right into that 2000 to 2008 timeline that you kind of spelled out for us. Yeah. Um, and the important thing to remember as well is like Abramovich is like a notoriously private guy. So like he didn't speak to the media for like 16 years or something like that before eventually coming out and having an interview one day. Um, and it just shows that maybe, you know, part of the whole f- reason of him wanting to sell is that there are just too many eyes on him at the moment. You know, he's a private guy and he doesn't want to be in the spotlight anymore. And, and maybe that's kind of been the, the reason for him choosing to want to accept offers for Chelsea. Sure. And, it, you know, that was obviously one of the questions I I've, I think everybody has, right, where um, it doesn't seem he, because he is a private guy, you don't get a good insight into who the man is, what the man make, what makes the man tick. And I think you could draw a straight line between him and Chelsea Football Club as far as like this is he loves this more than any person on earth. It feels like. Right. And so there were um, at least murmurs of a complete redesign or potential new stadium uh, to replace the bridge at some point. Right. So so he was going to make his mark on um, uh, an everlasting mark as if he hadn't already. Right. Um, On on Chelsea. Um, So it is it is sort of interesting to see that the the rapidness with which this is sort of uh, kind of played out between like I, I gave the timeline before between Sunday and Wednesday, it went from, um, maybe he's going to step back for a little while to he's selling the club. He has three offers on the table. It's, it's impressively fast. Um, so, so that's kind of where I, it's all conjecture, right? But I, it, like you said, it is certainly to do with the most recent fallout in, uh, in, in Russia and Ukraine. So um, I want to, Turn to a second to um, what do you think about the future for Chelsea potentially looks like in the in life after Roman, if you will. Um, we've heard that there are a couple of buyers. There's some U.S. consortiums. Um, and I, I look at it in the context of current Premier League ownerships, right? Um, and three that I would bring up, two are in London uh, with Stan Kroenke, uh, Joe Lewis, who are – I would say relatively hands-off. And then Sheikh Mansour, obviously, of Manchester City, um, who's far more – not that he's active, but he his his funding is active. For And I'll stay, take a step back for the listeners who don't – I'm not sure um, – all of this money that Chelsea has spent on players, we've talked about how much they've spent on Lukaku quite a bit. Um, this is all in the context of personal loans from Roman Abramovich that – correct me if I'm wrong – uh, is uh, upwards of 1.5 billion pounds, maybe two. I'm not sure that I lose it in exchange rates sometimes. Um, where effectively, when he sells, the thinking is, is that that would be built into the cost of the acquisition for the new buyer. So with that in mind, do you think that there's um, – do you think that that A, deters any potential buyers, and B, do you think that – what, what do you think of the new potential ownership that could come in in the context of, like I said, that Kroenke, Lewis, and Mansoor spectrum, if you will? Uh, okay, so I'll do do one thing at a time. Sorry, um, yeah. the, um, in terms of the, the, the £1.5 billion loan, um, it appears that he's at uh, Abramovich, he released in his statement when he said he was going to sell the club, that he wasn't going to be asking for that back. Um, and that 
therefore, Chelsea will be able to just sort of have it written off, as it were, um, from Abramovich. And so Abramovich is only looking to, uh, I believe he said, he's only looking to get the net proceeds um, and he's going to donate the rest to charities in Ukraine. Um, you know, set up, sorry, he's actually going to set up a charity to donate to the Ukrainian people who are suffering at the moment. Um, and I think more than anything, that can probably tell you where he stands on things um, without him having to actually um, condemn Putin himself, because we all know what happens when people condemn Putin. Right. Uh, people don't last very long. <laughs> so um, in terms of um, the loan itself, I don't think um, that will put people off, because like I said, um, Abramovich is planning on having it sort of be written off, as it were. Um, and he's not asking Chelsea for it back. There was a lot of conjecture around and a lot of speculation around what would happen if um, someone wanted to come in and they assume that debt and then suddenly Chelsea are a team that's one and a half billion pounds in debt and the owners don't really want to do anything uh, with it. They just kind of want to use it to profit off Chelsea and make some money, which would be the worst case scenario. Um, but I would say in terms of like what a new ownership structure needs to look like um, for Chelsea, there's there's definitely ch the chance of getting sort of like a consortium type um, set up with multiple buyers. That's what's being talked about a lot today. Um, I believe his name is Weiss or Weiss. I don't know how you pronounce it, but the Swedish guy and some Americans are looking into buying, uh, or at least they've put an offer on the table, I think, of around three billion for Abramovich. Um and we're hearing of other reports of um, unconfirmed people, you know, people we don't know yet unnamed, um, who are also bidding at, literally as of sort of a couple hours ago um, for Chelsea. So I think where where it could go um, in terms of Chelsea, the, the post-Roman era is going to be, for starters, extremely, like it could be a hugely broad uh, set of circumstances on the one hand you could get Roman 2 right which pretty much every Chelsea fan would see as best case scenario um, in my opinion um, you'd get someone who loves the club who wants to put money into the club um, keeps that ruthlessness that Chelsea are so well known for um, and win at all costs because that's the that's sort of the uh, the Chelsea um, sort of culture as it were you know I think um, a lot of Chelsea fans, when they look at um, other teams like um, Arsenal, for example, or Man United, they really worry in terms of like the the ownership structure. And if we don't get a good owner on the other end of that spectrum, if we get a, a, an owner who is somewhere more like the Glazers or someone more like Cronky, I don't know much about Joe, Lew Joe Lewis myself, but maybe he is a part of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, you know, maybe it's a case that... He's, you know, like maybe in, in from that way, you're looking at people who are trying to make money off of the club instead of really um, put the, you know, who are putting the money before the club and the and the money before the passion for the sport and the club, which is, and, and that won't sit very well with Chelsea fans because that'll be a massive culture shock to someone who's, who's treated the club like his baby, put ridiculous amounts of money into it, loves the city, loves the people. And, and now that he's selling, you know, even though he, I think he knows the writings on the wall, which is why he's selling. I think he knows that he will be sanctioned soon if he doesn't. Um, so ideally what I've heard, and this is all conjecture and Twitter nonsense, you know, if you choose it to be, I suppose, but um, from what he has said, he wants obviously to the best for Chelsea. So he'll likely pick the best candidate who gives him a 
a strong enough bid. So if there are several uh, buyers all looking for a roughly about the three billion mark, I think he'll probably end up um, choosing whichever one of those is best for Chelsea, um, which is a little bit worrisome in some cases because um, Roman loves the club and we know that, but we don't know. Um, well, we probably do know how much he likes the British government at the moment, which is probably not a lot. Um, <laughs> and he might want to give them some problems or, you know, something like that, or hurt the British government in some way through Chelsea by his choice of next owner. But personally, I don't think, I think it'd be a little vindictive of him to do that. I think he loves the, the club too much for that. And he'd rather go with Grace. Um, so I think ultimately, yeah, like it's going to be one thing or it's going to be completely on the other end. And it it's it's sort of it's uh, it's like being at the crest of a roller coaster for Chelsea fans at the moment. You have no like, you know, you know, there's a, you know, it's about to get really exciting uh, <laughs> uh, if for one reason or another. But we're just not sure in what way yet. Well, it seems like it's been exciting the last, I don't know, what, 10 days or so, uh, substituting goalkeepers before penalties. I promised I wouldn't talk about it. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> That's okay. But, to to uh, be honest, I think it was the right decision. I think know. it's the right call. Okay. And so, wait, you know, so I'm actually, now, now I have to, why do you think that was the right call? Well, okay, right. So just to get into, the, you know, this is a good opportunity for me to speak about my, my because uh, we all know from my thread and things like that, clearly of my, Excellent political insight. Uh, but here we can talk about my insane ball knowledge, which is, you know, is great. Um, sure. Let's do it. But, um, and, you know, and how modest I am as well. Yes. Um, but so here's why I think it's the right decision uh, for him to bring Kepper on. Yes, Mendy was having a good game, right? That's in the in the league in the League Cup final. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Um, but the plan has always been for Kepper to come on. That is always the plan in penalty shootouts. Kepper is a penalty specialist. Um, and I think he doesn't get anywhere near the amount of back. Well, he gets way more backlash than he would have done because he missed. Um, I think if he had come on, say, uh, the instead of going to 11-10 or whatever it was, Kepa scores his penalty and it just goes on further, right? And then eventually, say, Liverpool win anyway on, say, 15-14 or whatever. Um, then that player gets a lot of stick. But on top of Kepa being subbed on, he also missed the the penalty. Oh, yeah. You know, even when he's named as the the specific penalty spe- specialist. But I think you've got to trust in Tuchel on that one. Um, you know, he's uh, Kepa saved us in a fair few penalty uh, shootouts in the past, in particular the Super Cup. People have really short memories. You know, he came on 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 the 119th minute of that game, won us the penalty shootout. You know, so I think it was. It was for all intents and purposes, especially when you look at the stats and the statistics and the um, the percentages and things like that of penalty saves. Kepa is a better penalty saver than Mendy, no matter how good a game he's having, right? And and ultimately, I um, you can't put too much pressure on a goalkeeper missing a penalty because that's not no. their job. Um, you know, you can say all you like about having missed the other penalty, uh, having not saved the other penalties, but remember, Kelleher didn't save any others either. Right. No. And, and, and so when we say penalty specialist, we did not mean taking penalties. Right. So yeah. that, I, think that's, I think that's important to, to call out right away. We called it, we talked a lot about it on our show on, uh, on Tuesday. Um, the thing that we found interesting and I was actually saying, and I was first guessing it, I, I had forgotten that they do do this. And I did listen to uh, Tuchel saying, you know, the plan, assuming we have a substitution left is to bring him on at the end of extra time. And I understand that. Uh, two things. I'm not sure there's the there's enough data in games to say he's definitely better 
than in penalties, which is, by the way, still a handful of coin flips anyway most of the time, right? Um, so that, he was having a good game. And also, he's five inches bigger than Kepa, <laughs> which I think should matter more than it does, right? Like, so um, as a casual observer, frankly, I don't care much for Chelsea or Liverpool. I was watching that game uh, kind of in, as a very interested neutral, I guess. Um, but uh, I, I found that to be very, very interesting. And of course, you have to talk about Kepa's past, right? With the, the, it was the league cup, I think a few years back with yes. sorry. Right. So, so that, that is for me at least. And I think for a lot of fans, the lasting image they have of Kepa, because that was sort mm -hmm. of the peak of him at Chelsea, uh, if there was one, I suppose. Um, but yeah, so I think that that was the, the main questions that we sort of had walking out of walking into the penalty shootout. And I was like, I don't know. And then I don't know if you're familiar with um, the men and blazers podcast. They're very famous here in the States. They are both British by the way. One, and then um, Michael Davies is a Chelsea supporter, um, but they always say the premier league script writers, right? Like, cause it's like some things you just can't make up, right? Kepa comes on and it's, 10 10 or 11 10 at this point and he has to <laughs> he has to score to keep it going and of course he hits it not even not even on the frame he hits it into rosie right so i mean it was um, an excellent field goal it was fantastic yeah i mean that's <laughs> good from 60 yards so yeah um yeah i mean um so i guess i'll i'll, I'll move into more football than come uh questions then do you think that because we saw them struggle with Luton Town yes, yesterday, whenever that was, in the FA Cup, they ended up pulling out a 3-2 victory. Um, do you think that this – and Tuchel has acknowledged this. Do you think that this kind of can create issues for Chelsea on the field in the next, I don't know, next couple of weeks? They seem to be locked into that third spot. I, we've said on the show a lot, we don't really think that they're of the ilk of Liverpool or City this year, and that's certainly mm -hmm. nothing against Chelsea at all. Um and they don't seem to be in danger of any of the, frankly, also rans behind them fighting amongst themselves for fourth. But do you think that they could be pulled into that race as a function of this? I, it's possible. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of um, the speculation around the club right now. And um, I think there's a, there's a really interesting way to view it. And that's through Tuchel's managerial style. Mm -hmm. um, it's really important to remember Tuchel said like several times this season when there's been like drama around the club, whether it was the Romelu Lukaku interview, um, whether it's now the stuff with Ukraine or Abramovich selling the club. He hates noise. You know, he's someone who doesn't like distractions. He, and, and it's clear, like, you know, seeing the um, the players play yesterday, even though we did pull out the victory, um, we were nowhere near the sort of quality that you would expect um, from, you know, a Chelsea side going up against a good and strong, but ultimately less good Luton, uh, Luton Town team. Um, so I think it's clear to see that the players are distracted. Um, it's now come out, I think Angolo Kante did a, uh, an interview today where he said... Um, because the news came out so soon before the game, it sort of it did have a sort of a distracting effect on the players, sure. and it will also have that effect on Tuchel. Uh, what you know, uh, may it, I don't, I'm not sure what uh, what possessed him to choose to play Loftus Cheek uh, in the centre of a back three in defense. Um, but you know, it's it's again, it's you know, it's one of those ones like the uh, the Kepper and Mendy situation. If it if it works, it's a it's a stroke of genius, right. <laughs> um, right, and it did right. work. Um, so I think it's fair to say that there's there's a lot going on at Chelsea at the moment. And um, I would be surprised if we didn't see results suffer on the pitch a little as a result. Um, but I guess now it's the Chelsea fan in me saying, I really hope that doesn't happen because 
getting pulled into the top four race will be quite um, quite a miserable place to be. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, especially because it's so competitive this year for that fourth spot. You've got the likes of Spurs are looking better under Conte, Conte all the time. You know, even though you know they've had their issues, you've got Arsenal who are who are just flying in some games. You've got West Ham, Man United who are probably actually, in my opinion, won't make it this season. But um, you know, you've got a lot of really, really strong teams vying for fourth. And if Chelsea let up too much, they can definitely get leapfrogged. Um, and with the distractions going on at the club, um, I think that definitely has to be a valid concern. Whether or not it will be in a few weeks, you know, we'll see. Maybe they can steady the ship. Yeah. No. And, and as I turn to looking at Chelsea's upcoming schedule, hey, Burnley is not your father's Burnley anymore. I mean, they are... They are still playing a lot of the same style. They are still very much Sean Dyche ball, if you will. But there's there's a hunger about them uh, that I, I'm i scared of now. I mean, I just got bit by it a few weeks ago, right, or whatever that was. But So they go into Turf Moor on Saturday. Then they, they uh, are away at Norwich. Look, that's Luton Town, right? Like, you can be distracted as you want. You're still Chelsea Football Club. You still should take care of business against Norwich. Newcastle for me at home, I think that that's one that they can probably take care of. Then you've got some of the cup games. You're already up 2-0 um, against Lille in the uh, in the Champions League. We've seen more dramatic things happen, but come on, but, uh, unlikely, right? So, uh, And then Middlesbrough uh, in the FA Cup. The less talked about Middlesbrough's last FA Cup game, the better. Um, and uh, 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 then Brentford and Southampton in Leeds, right? So obviously after that, it certainly picks up. You've got far more dis- uh, you know, difficult fixtures to end the season. Um, but I do think that you pick up a good amount, a healthy amount of points there, and you probably move into the uh, the quarterfinal of the Champions League and probably the semifinal of the FA Cup. So you're looking at you know uh, uh, a season, despite all of the Lukaku stuff, despite all of the you know the the ownership stuff, you were quite literally one penalty away from the Carabao Cup. Whatever, more than likely the at least. The quarterfinals of the Champions League, the semifinals of the FA Cup, and comfortably in the top four. Because again, I just it's it's going to be awfully hard for me to see them lose that many points in the next call it three to four weeks, where Spurs or United or West Ham or Arsenal, basically two of those has to catch you for it to really be troublesome. And yeah. we've talked a lot on the show. We spent way too much time on the top four race this year because it's one of those hot potatoes that literally nobody wants. Uh, and sometimes that makes for the best races, but not when you're in it. I can promise you that. Um, so uh, <laughs> It's really it's, interesting because, you, yeah. you know, the, like you said, it's really, really competitive this season, especially for that. Um, you know, it seems that the – I mean, for all intents and purposes, I know there's been talk about like sort of like a title chase reignition for Liverpool, but I don't think that'll happen. I think I think City have it sewn up. Um, I think Liverpool comfortably gets second. Then you've got Chelsea, who you know, despite what we've said, it's pretty likely they'll get third. But fourth position is absolutely crucial this season. Um, you know, it and the clubs vying for it are all they're all big clubs. They're all clubs that really you know are looking. Um, looking to make their mark, especially the likes of West Ham, who who are absolutely phenomenal under David Moyes this season. You know, for what they've been doing in the past. Um, so yeah, like uh, there's a there's a it's a getting very competitive. Just going back um, to talking about Chelsea's schedule. Um, yeah, Burnley aren't your father's Burnley anymore. I think that's a really good way to put it. They've um, they've sort of evolved with the times. They I think it used to kind of be that um, ever since Stoke left the Premier League, Burnley sort of took up the mantle of being that team. 
um, you know, yeah. where it's just kind of kick it, lump it long, and, you know, you'll get enough points and you'll stay up. But, you know, um, Maxwell Cornet is one of my favourite players um, out of the top six this season. He, he's he's an absolutely phenomenal player, um, and he's been phenomenal for, for Burnley this season, so I'm really, really impressed with him. So I don't know if he is injured or anything at the moment, but if he plays against Chelsea... Um, that will be a, a serious concern for us because, you know, all, you know, chari- we have this thing amongst um, Chelsea fans. Sometimes we're called Charity FC because we're we're quite good at just gifting games away. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, and you know, I'm sure as a Spurs fan, sometimes it feels like that a little. I bit have no fun. idea what you're talking about. Never <laughs> happened. Um, Never so you know, it's kind of a chance for Charity FC to be in full effect, especially against the likes of Burnley. Um, and you know, I know how you said uh, Norwich aren't really, uh, you know, aren't really much competition. And while we did beat them by quite a significant margin in the earlier game this season, Chelsea were flying high. They had a lot of the players. They um, don't now don't have a lot of the players that they had back then because of the likes of Chilwell getting injured and things like that. And as well, when you look at it, Norwich is starting to press up on form as well. They almost drew with Liverpool a couple of weeks ago, I think. You know, so I think it's it's important to remember that Norwich were also on an upward trajectory. That I don't think, you know, it's the classic thing of the Premier League. Everyone can beat everyone, more or less, except sure. Man City. Man City beats everyone else, but um, except for Tottenham this year. Except for Tottenham, I'm just saying. Yeah, who, who then that. themselves that's, can, can that's struggle our against everyone else. But, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, so it, I don't know. Um, I think it will be a largely defined down to the player's response, um, especially with all the uncertainty going on at the club at the moment um, for whether the whether Chelsea's fixture list, you know, whether come sort of April we're looking like we've secured top uh, we've secured third place or whether it's looking a little dicey, you know, it only yeah. takes one or two poor results in tandem before, especially at Chelsea, before people start asking questions and, and there's like a lot of speculation about what's next and what the answer is, especially with our misfiring attack this season. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, and they still have two games in hand, as I love to point out, but those are not easy games uh, at home against Leicester. And then you've got a London Derby against Arsenal, which, I mean, geez, that could be three versus four. That could have some kind of permutations for both teams uh, in the top four race. So that'll be a really exciting game still to be uh, decided when that game is going to be. Um, But, yeah, I think my larger point was like, hey, you're not playing a lot of the the top side. These are points that, despite Charity FC, you probably should pick up and should see you clear through, again, a a, a bumbly uh, top four. It's it's. Top three and then the rest, I think, is how we've kind of um, looked at it for a lot of the season. But um, so let's go back to the post-Roman era for a second. Uh, I had, again, this is all Twitter conjecture. I think it is how you put it, and it's absolutely bang on. I have seen names um, like Paula Ferreira potentially leaving the club. Uh, Marina. Uh, I think that was confirmed today. Is that confirmed? Okay, so then that's that's a significant loss or absence for Chelsea going forward. Marina, who we have uh, fawned over as much as any Tottenham fan can on this show, the way that she handles basically everything. And you could tell us better than, than we, the homework that we did, but this is more or less her club at this point. Is that fair to say? Um, Yeah, you, you could say that to a certain degree. Um, I think there's Marina gets uh, a lot more credit maybe than she should and also a lot more stick than she should at the same time. So like she, she gets a lot of criticism, a lot of criticism, and she also gets 
lot of love. And the, the love she gets is obviously for being an excellent financier of football deals, mm-hmm. right? You know, the likes of selling Hazard for whatever it was, oh, combined 150 million on the last year of his contract. You've got Murata, who, you know, I'm uh, who I'm convinced at this point is an international money laundering operation because how, how <laughs> this many people paid 60 odd million for Murata. Um, you know, and, and getting good deals for almost every player who we do bring in. Um, you know, it's uh, Marina who signed the likes of uh, Con- uh, Angolo Conte for 32 million, where, you know, and if if you can imagine the likes of um, Angolo Conte going for anything other than, you know, back then, going for anything other than 60-odd million now, you, you'd be absolutely laughing. So, you know, she's she gets a lot of praise, Um and she and she deserves that praise. It's worth saying, you know. I, I think um, it, what a clear thing is to see as well about the speculation about who's coming and who's leaving at Chelsea to see how good a person really is, because um, we all get these little echo chambers of our own clubs and our own fans, right? Is to actually look outside of it, look what and see what rival fans think of someone joining or leaving your club, right? And rival fans will be lapping up the concept of Marina leaving Chelsea. That shows how big of an impact she's had. On the on the other side, she gets um, a lot more criticism than maybe um, she deserves, especially from inside the Chelsea fan base, because people don't always quite understand, and it's quite easy to misunderstand why, um, because she is only a financer of deals. She doesn't scout players. She can only work with you know, okay, this is the target. All right, I'm going to negotiate the best price that I can for this player. Mm-hmm. Um, she doesn't scout the players. Um, so, she, you know, uh, the likes of Lukaku and Bakayoko and this and that and and all the players, you know, all the now, you know, the laundry list of players who have started to not quite hit the right mark at Chelsea. Um, she can be an easy scapegoat because people go, look, she paid for this. But you know, you're actually going, well, the club paid for it and she made the deal as good as it could be. But, you know, she's also, you know, she's only given what's in front of her in terms of targets. At least that's the way I understand it. Um, and I think people can um, people can give uh, Marina a lot of stick for that. On the other side as well, there's valid criticisms to give Marina as well, um, because she is notoriously hard nosed, right, uh, in terms of business deals, and that really works to Chelsea's um, to Chelsea's benefit a lot of the time. But except when selling players that um, you know, the, when people talk about Deadwood players. Um, you know, these are actually, you know, assets of the club and it's important to be able to get as much money out of them as possible for the stable and sustainable running of the club. You've got the likes of, you know, Bakayoko, uh, Bashwai, Kennedy, who just came back into the squad. All these sorts of players who are still on Chelsea books, Danny Drinkwater even, you know, who he paid a ridiculous right. amount of money for and is, uh, just don't go into it. But, um, you know, and and the reason... Marina gets criticism is because at this point Chelsea are saying free up the wages sell you know just sell them for anything doesn't matter let their contracts you know don't let the contracts run just sell them for a million sell them for a, a Twix and a packet of biscuits if you have to just sell them um but Marina uh, is you know focused on getting the most out that she can for players you know if she can eke seven million for this player and three million for this player and 20 million for this player it adds up kind of quickly and I think it's it can be easy to miss that um, but at the same time, it's very frustrating where if she's going, if she holds out um, on deals that potentially could make the club better in the long run for the financial um, impact right now. So it's sort of it's here and there. She gets a lot more stick than she deserves, but she also gets a lot of love that I think um, is also deserved. But, you know, she has her downsides as well. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I think um, 
the uh, the way that we look at her. And I think that the way you said that, like we actually think she's fantastic. So if she did leave, we'd be like, all right, that's, that's good news for not Chelsea fans, essentially. Right. <laughs> um, uh, I think the way that we look at her is the way that she's managed what we sort of refer to as like the Chelsea loan army. And if Laurent were here, he would be fawning over his new love child, Connor Gallagher. Um, and so you look into if let's say go back to the earlier part of the conversation where like the worst case scenario for, for Chelsea, where basically you have more or less a, a, just a shit cronky as a new owner, right? <laughs> um, uh, you still have that stable of, of you're going to plug him into your midfield next year, no problem, right? So um, there is even the worst case scenario for Chelsea in the near term, still pretty good, right? So um, that's sort of where we have given her so much credit to say, wow, not only is she moving these players on to be able to fund a Lukaku deal, even if that deal falls on its face, it's a net even, right? It doesn't hurt Mm -hmm. at all. Whereas, you know, some of the other clubs in the league, especially clubs that consider them uh, effectively fighting for the same spots and same, same trophies, Spurs can't do that. Spurs literally wanted to do that with Lautaro Martinez and they couldn't. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, so, so it's interesting that even despite all of Roman's money and the loans and all that stuff, she does still, to a degree, run it, as you said, like with the Hazard sale, pretty close to a net even, uh, you know, kind of operation, which is shocking to think about. You think you only look at it as, oh, they spent $100 million on Lukaku, they spent this on this guy, so on and so forth. But actually, like you said, three, seven, ten, not just the dead wood, but a lot of these players coming through the ranks, they add up as well. So um so i find that that's how we've always at least from from this side of the pond uh, myself and laurent have always looked at uh marina as the man we got to get that bitch out of here because she's awesome you know (laughs) um so so i'm very curious to see what what she does or what her role may or may not be in this new world order at chelsea um what do you think about uh it, it like is anybody safe right is tuchel safe because when I think about a new regime coming in in any American sport, and this is sort of what we do a lot on the show, we basically say, okay, well, over here, this is what would happen, right? And so mm-hmm. uh, if a new general manager were to come in or a new ownership or whatever, uh, I think of college football a lot, which is sort of silly to, for you to think about. But um, uh, if a, a new athletic director comes in and they don't love the head coach, they give him like six months. And I'm like, if you don't win every game, we have, I have every excuse in the world to get rid of you if I want to. Tuchel has quite a bit of success in his short time at Chelsea, but would you think that a new ownership and new hierarchy in place might look to potentially get rid of him? That's an interesting question. Um, and I think it will depend on how in tune the new owners are with the fans, right? Um, and this is where people like, you know, um, the Chelsea supporters trust and things like that are really important to be able to communicate with the club about what's good for them and what they want. And, and um, I think one key thing, um, it's quite interesting. Chelsea fans disagree about basically everything, right? (laughs) You can't get Chelsea fans to agree on literally anything except Thomas Tuchel. Everyone wants Thomas Tuchel to stay. Everyone thinks he's basically, you know, if not one of, if the best manager in the world at the moment. Um, And even, you know, including myself, um, you know, I I would be absolutely uh, appalled at any decision to get rid of... um, What people are arguing is Chelsea's best manager ever. You know, in in a year, you know... in really not a very long stretch of time, he's he's done what almost no other manager has done. 
You know, I know you can talk about Di Matteo in 2012, but that team basically managed itself, um, right. you know, uh, with the Champions League. Whereas, you know, Tuchel did it and he didn't really, you know, Chelsea won the Champions League at a canter. They really did. Their, their, their defensive um, record of only letting in four goals the entire campaign, that was absolutely ridiculous. I'm not sure that, you know, there's a good chance that might never be broken again. And so um, Tuchel's legacy... Um, and he's lucky, um, in a sense, to for this to be the case. But his legacy is already cemented as like a great Chelsea coach, um, and I think that will give um, whoever the owner is to come in like a good opportunity to to look at him and, and figure out whether you know they're who he's who they want to go with for the future. You know, there's there's not um, there's precedent of of uh, of managers staying um, when new owners come in in the Premier League and leaving. Um, for example, you've got an example from Chelsea when Roman Abramovich came in for the first time, Ranieri out, Mourinho in, right? But then you've also got an example um, of recently, you've got um, Burnley who were bought out by, I think it was um, ALK uh, Sports or something like that, the ALK group. Or, um, and um, and they're still with Sean Dyche because they love the guy. Um, so th- there's... It's definitely about like how in tune any new owner is with the club. Um, and I think Chelsea supporters, more than anything else with a new owner coming in, they want Tuchel to stay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think uh, I think it would be a tremendous mistake to let him go. I, I As you said with rival fans, I hate Thomas mm-hmm. Tuchel, right? So, <laughs> uh, so there you have it, right? Um, although... It looks like Mourinho may be out of a job again soon. So if you did want to go for another go around with Jose, which I cannot stress, I think would be a great fit for Chelsea at this point. <laughs> um, yeah, no. Um, well, I mean, I think that's that's pretty much all I've got. Thank you so much uh, for coming on, Ollie. Uh, you can find Ollie at Ollie J Carpenter on Twitter and at Goalytics, which we're very excited to learn a little bit more about and watch it grow uh, just as much as that thread did the other day. Thanks so much, Ali, for coming on. That was the Squeaky Bum Time podcast with Mike Sloan and Laurent Martins and sometimes Ali Carpenter, uh, the football wing of the Chop Sports Network. We record on Tuesdays and Fridays, so be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You never, ever miss an episode. And if you're on Apple, please rate, review, comment, tell us what you think about our show so we can reach more crazy football fans like yourself. 